This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll get a broad look at gun violence in our region and some of the unique factors at play. Plus, we'll hear how families with immune-compromised children are getting left out of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. This child is very high risk. I need the vaccine. And yet, the science isn't there yet. We'll also hear why Montana's governor is making headlines for shooting a wolf. That and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Ray Solomon. The public mass shooting in Boulder has once again positioned Colorado in the national spotlight for gun violence. But across the Mountain West, there are some unique factors at play that contribute to a higher per capita rate of gun violence than other regions in the U.S. KUNC's Mountain West News Bureau reporter Robin Vincent has been looking into gun violence and gun culture in our region. She's with us now for more. Robin, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you start by giving us an overall picture of gun culture and violence in the Mountain West? Well, first, I should note that the Mountain West has the highest rate of gun ownership in the country, with Montana at the top of the list. According to the Rand Corporation, 64% of Montanans live in a house with a firearm. Colorado is at 39%. And states in our region have few regulations when it comes to things like open carry. Now, when we talk about mass shootings, a 2019 analysis by the Denver Post found that several states in our region have some of the highest rates per capita in the country. That includes New Mexico, Nevada, and Idaho, along with Colorado. So I talked with researcher James Densley about factors unique to the Mountain West and a potential path forward. Densley is pretty immersed in these tragic events and gun violence in general. He's a professor of criminal justice at Metropolitan State University in Minneapolis. And Densley is also co-founder and co-president of The Violence Project. That's a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank dedicated to reducing violence in the U.S. What has stood out to him in his research about gun violence in our region? Well, Densley noted a broader cultural phenomenon that's pervasive in the Mountain West, and that is a romanticized notion of rugged individualism. I think in some ways, firearms are kind of the ultimate expression of American individualism and and this idea of freedom, which was sort of forged on the frontier, and that people kind of hark back to that a little bit. And then for those uh, individuals who have fallen on hard times in recent years, you know, we're talking about the kind of uh, blue collar folks who feel like America has kind of left them behind, they may turn to their firearms as a kind of expression of their masculinity and uh, as a way of kind of clinging back to this idea that they still have a degree of power and a degree of control over their lives. Densley also pointed to the problem of contagion particularly here in Colorado, where we've seen a number of high-profile mass shootings. Notably, the Columbine shooting in 1999 and then the Aurora movie theater shooting in 2012. And we know from our research with mass shooters that they do tend to study other mass shooters and that some shootings kind of do catch fire and sort of galvanize others and and serve as inspiration. Columbine is certainly one which really fits that uh, profile. And so 
to some extent, some of this might be a little bit of a kind of contagion or copycat. That's why Densley says it's imperative that the media report on this a certain way, uplifting the stories of the heroes and the survivors versus looking at the gory details. And that's something that Colorado journalists have learned to do because they've unfortunately reported on these incidents with alarming frequency. There have been some notable cases where people have flagged that, you know, after perpetrating a mass shooting, it's a sort of a way of achieving a level of fame that would otherwise be impossible. And I think we need to do everything we can to avoid that, which is holding media and social media and other companies accountable for the things that they, uh, they print and that they promote on their, on their platforms. Now, Densley says there are some common sense steps we can take to ensure that people who have violent intent and that shouldn't have ready access to firearms don't get them. One of the things that's quite noticeable in our research through the violence projects on uh, mass shooters, looking at mass shooters all the way back to 1966 to the present day, is that many shooters purchase their firearms within days or weeks of the shooting occurring. Yet at the same time, they are in a noticeable crisis in their lives. And so it should be, we should be able to put a little bit of a pause on people's ability to get access to firearms during these kind of critical moments in their lives. According to the suspect's arrest affidavit, he bought the firearm less than a week prior to the shooting. Now, we know the scope of this problem is huge, but Densley cautioned that people shouldn't get discouraged by the notion that lawmakers need to pass sweeping reform legislation now. Instead, he says there's a realistic, incremental path forward that will yield demonstrable change. For too long, I think people have been reluctant to act and they use what I think is a really bad excuse, which is to say we have imperfect solutions and because there's no one thing that will completely solve this problem outright, therefore we should do nothing. And I really just want to caution against that and, and hopefully that our policymakers move the needle on this now, which is even if you have imperfect solutions, even if they won't solve all aspects of the problem, you can layer imperfect solutions one on top of each other and and in so doing create a more holistic violence prevention strategy. Densley stresses that's fully achievable and it just means not pitting solutions against each other and saying well it's either mental health or it's either guns and, and, and you can't have both we can have both and we should have both. And that's really what we need to be doing on, on this issue is looking at it, its complexity, looking at it holistically so we can get to real solutions. In terms of what Densley sees as the most critical solutions to act on now, he did say legislation focused on firearms will have the biggest and most immediate impact. So that would include policies like red flag laws, which allow for a person's firearm to be seized if they're a threat to themselves or others. A red flag law in Colorado did go into effect last year, and according to the Denver Post, it was used more than 100 times in 2020. Densley also pointed to universal background checks. 
Colorado is among the states that runs background checks, but there's no such unifying federal policy. Densley says enacting waiting periods before a person can purchase a firearm would also be impactful. And that's something Colorado doesn't have on the books. That was KUNC's Mountain West News Bureau reporter, Robin Vincent. Robin, thank you for your reporting on this. Thanks so much for having me. Gun owners in Colorado could soon be legally obligated to call police when their firearm has been lost or stolen. Democrats at the state capitol are advancing a bill with that requirement this week. They say it will reduce gun violence by helping police recover missing weapons. Gun owners would have five days to report their missing firearm or face a $25 fine for the first offense. Critics say the measure is not needed because most gun owners are responsible and already reporting missing weapons. The bill has already passed the Senate on a party-line vote. It cleared a House committee on Tuesday and is headed to the full House for more debate. A few years ago, the Montana governor's personal antics made international headlines after he body slammed a reporter. Now Greg Gianforte's personal actions are getting global attention again after he trapped and shot a Yellowstone wolf. Nate Hedgie has more for KUNC. Yellowstone National Park is known for a lot of things. It's geysers, it's grizzly bears, and it's wolves. There are around 90 or so of the animals living within the park, and they're pretty famous. People from all over the world come to Yellowstone specifically to see these wolves. That's Jonathan Proctor. He's with the environmental nonprofit Defenders of Wildlife. He says the wolves are protected within Yellowstone, but if they wander outside of the park... They can so easily be just killed. That's because it's actually legal to hunt and trap wolves in neighboring states such as Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana, as long as the wolf has stepped outside the park's boundaries. And that was the fate of a black male Yellowstone wolf known as 1155. He was born inside the park a few years ago, and he became one of the wolves biologists track using a radio collar. But recently, 1155 wandered outside of Yellowstone, likely in search of a new mate. Instead, though, he found a trap set by the state's governor, Greg Gianforte. Gianforte killed the wolf on February 15th on a private ranch about 10 miles north of the park. Perfectly legal, except Gianforte still got in trouble with state wildlife officials because he failed to take a required wolf trapping certification course before he killed the animal. John Sullivan is with the sportsman's group Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. He says this course is like taking driver's ed before you drive. It's a really good thing to do so that the people who are engaging in this sport Uh, understand what they're doing, they're educated, they're safe. And they learn how to trap wolves ethically and more humanely. Plus, it's required. Everyone who traps wolves has to take it. But Gianforte didn't. And after he killed his wolf, he was issued a written warning by Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. The governor's spokesperson said Gianforte made a, quote, mistake. And he's since signed up for a class. But Sullivan said the governor should have known better. It's difficult to fathom accidentally not taking that class. 
That's because Sullivan says when you go to buy your wolf trapping licenses online, it clearly states that you need to register for the required class, too. Plus, Gianforte is an avid sportsman. In fact, he got into trouble two decades ago when he illegally shot a young elk. He has been hunting and trapping in Montana for a long time. And I, I would be surprised to learn that he didn't know better than to finish that class, to complete that education. And we hope that he apologizes to the citizens of the state for, you know, circumventing the process that we all have to go through. But Nick Jivak with the conservation nonprofit Montana Wildlife Federation takes a more measured approach. He says, sure, Gianforte screwed up by not taking the class, but he also followed all the other rules. It was within the bounds of the season, and the only violation in this case was lack of that course. He says it's a teachable moment for Gianforte. Still, the governor's actions have drawn the ire of other prominent environmental organizations and animal protection groups, including the U.S. Humane Society. Amanda Wright says the governor got off easy. He might have received a a slap on the wrist in the form of a, a written warning, but this is really a slap in the face to the millions of people that you know, come to his state to see these wolves. She says an iconic and famous animal, like the Yellowstone wolf, deserves better. She also argues that wolf traps are inhumane. They're extremely cruel. She says they hold animals until they either injure themselves trying to escape, or they're killed by hunters. New Mexico recently banned trapping on public lands there, but it's still legal across most of the Mountain West, including Montana, where the legislature is trying to expand trapping opportunities for wolves. In fact, Republicans are currently pushing a suite of bills that would drastically reduce the number of wolves in the state through hunting and trapping. And Gianforte? He's in charge of signing those bills into law. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Nate Hedgie in Missoula, Montana. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Ray Solomon. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. As outbreaks at Colorado's long-term care facilities continue to decline, state officials are easing restrictions on visitors. New guidelines now allow visits to fully vaccinated residents, including close contact for family members, but with face masks and hand washing. Visits would be restricted in counties that have infection rates above 10 percent in facilities where fewer than 70 percent of residents are vaccinated. More and more people are getting those vaccines in northern Colorado, and the state continues to loosen restrictions. We're seeing people starting to enjoy gatherings, travel, and nights out again. You might even say that life is inching closer to normal. But families with immune-compromised children find themselves left out of the party. I wanted to find out more, so I reported this story. In many ways, Jennifer Ivan's household has been preserved in time, stuck in April of 2020, to be exact. The way she describes it, her Fort Collins family of four is still isolating like it's the first weeks of the pandemic lockdown. Life is very much at home. Um, we order all of our groceries online. I'd say 85 to 90 percent of the time we're we're at home online. The Ivans are keeping their guard up because their three-year-old son has Down syndrome, a condition linked to immune dysregulation. This makes him more susceptible to diseases like COVID-19. Especially with Ethan, we don't know what could potentially go wrong. We don't have a lot of data on the very young pediatric population. 
Joaquin Espinoza is director of the Linda Cernick Institute for Down Syndrome at the University of Colorado. In general, he says children do not get severely sick from COVID-19. But the prediction is that we will see higher rates of complication even at the younger ages among those with Down syndrome. Espinoza is concerned because recent studies, including one published in October in the Annals of Internal Medicine, have shown adults with Down syndrome are four times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID-19 than the general public, and they are 10 times more likely to die. Adults with Down syndrome in their 40s have a risk equivalent to typical people in their 80s. So having Down syndrome adds 40 years to your birth certificate when it comes to risk of severe COVID-19 symptoms. Even so, advocates across the country have struggled to get their states to include those with Down syndrome in the early phases of the vaccine rollout. Michelle C. Witten is president of the Global Down Syndrome Foundation. Colorado was a little late to the table in terms of our understanding of people with Down syndrome. Her group was instrumental in getting the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to recognize the condition as a high-risk factor for COVID-19. On March 19th, all Colorado adults with Down syndrome became eligible for vaccination. But vaccine phases are beside the point for high-risk children. That's really where the rub is. You know, you have a a child who is under 16, who has a lot of medical conditions. This child is very high risk. I need the vaccine. And yet the science isn't there yet to say that it's going to work in children. Pfizer's vaccine is approved for ages 16 and up. The Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines are limited to 18 and older. All three companies are running trials of the vaccine in younger children, but those results are likely months away. And that's worrisome for Jennifer Ivan. Right, it's 10 after 7, so you have an hour. In December, Ethan turned three. That's the cutoff age for early intervention services in the state, a support system that has followed him since infancy. So everything, speech, occupational therapy, physical therapy. In the middle of a pandemic, Ethan's access to all of those services transferred from his home to public preschool but Ivan was worried about sending him in person. It was like rolling the dice, I guess, you know, in a a game that we didn't want to play, but we kind of had to because we both work full time and we can't give him the attention that he needs. And at the end of the day, we just realized we can't risk him not developing. I mean, he's already behind. It's a tough calculation that many families have been forced to make. And it's why Michelle C. Witten with the Global Down Syndrome Foundation feels parents of children with Down syndrome and other immune compromising conditions have been overlooked when it comes to vaccine prioritization. And those are the families that are somewhat freaked out, uh, that are very concerned about their child being incredibly high risk. You know, I do think that vaccinating parents is the best line of defense uh, if you can't get your child vaccinated. To date, there's no data to bolster the best line of defense argument, also sometimes called cocooning high-risk patients. But experts like David Brumbaugh, who's the chief medical officer at Children's Hospital Colorado, still believe it's a good idea. If that primary caregiver, him or herself, got sick with COVID, then that that's going to be a critical gap in the care, and that might compromise the health of the child. For that reason, the American Association of Pediatrics supports bumping parents up in the vaccine priority line. And Brumbaugh says there's yet another reason his hospital is urging Colorado to do the same, mental health. Families have had to isolate themselves for, you know, going on 13 months now. 
it's really hard. Um, so yeah, we need to we need to give that group some relief. I think I worry about their mental health. Relief, of course, is relative at the Ivan household. You are 97.9. Cover your mouth, buddy. Ethan started school in January, and a couple of weeks ago, there was an email about an exposure in his classroom. After a few days of quarantine, they all tested negative. Then Ivan's husband got his first vaccine shot. Ivan herself won't be eligible until vaccines open up to the general population. And she says that getting it won't really change the precautions her family's taking, but it will help relieve the emotional burden they've been carrying. Oh my gosh, it'll be it'll be an enormous weight lifted. Ray Solomon, KUNC. The Hunt for Planet B is having its world premiere in the ongoing and online South by Southwest Festival. For KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, the film will make your jaw drop. The Hunt for Planet B shows the work being done on the James Webb Space Telescope, scheduled for launch in October. The project's been going for decades, and the very idea of the telescope and the engineering needed to pull off this mammoth and expensive task boggle the mind of a poor film critic. One aim for the web is to observe the earliest light yet seen in the universe, to help scientists learn far more about the origins of existence than they do now. The web has a hundred times the power of the Hubble telescope, which orbits Earth at an altitude of 340 miles. The web will be placed about a million miles from Earth, with a large gold over beryllium mirror and a very large sunscreen to protect the telescope from heat. It takes a lot of people to do this work, as well as the space agencies of the U.S., Canada, and the European Union. As the project developed, though, teams of scientists working on the Webb telescope, led by women, added to the mission goals the search for life on other planets outside our solar system. In the film, Dr. Sarah Seeger, an MIT astrophysicist working on the Webb, explains the situation to Congress. Do you think there's life out there? <laughs> and are they studying us? And what do they think about New York City? <laughs> well, let me just say that in our own Milky Way galaxy, there are 100 billion stars. And we now believe in our universe, we have more than 100 billion galaxies. So if you just do the math, the chance that there's a planet like Earth out there with life on that is very high. Like the joking congressman, I am now beyond my scientific capabilities. So about the hunt for Planet B as a film. The movie's subtle about it, but women are fully part of the scientific armada working on the Webb telescope, and that's a great step. Women lead meetings, women take the filmmakers up to a lonely observatory in Northern California. Women are prime figures talking about the project for the movie. Men, too. But to see a full contingent of women's a welcome sight. And the insights of women in particular helped shape the mission. Women scientists figured out an ingenious way to sight planets by how they slightly dim the visible light of a sun when they cross in front of it. What's also surprising is that director Nathaniel Kahn makes the building of a telescope a tense drama. The scientists show so much excitement, and the stakes are so high, that watching the film you feel the suspense. In tests, will panels of the mirror fit properly? Will the sunscreen deploy? A million miles away, there's no fixing things, so the web has one chance to work. It's fascinating to see how scientists think. 
They're human beings with wishes, desires, fears, and humor. They hang out at lakes. They have dinner in restaurants with their moms. But when they're being scientists, their focus is stunning. James Arenberg, one of the lead engineers, worries that his imagination will fail him, that he won't be able to foresee unimagined future problems that could destroy the mission. Another scientist worries that if someone crucial like Arenberg had an accident, irreplaceable knowledge about Webb would be lost. That's when the film cuts to a scientist working on a race car. The mind boggles trying to take in this wondrous symphony of science and humanity. As a note, the end credits of the film list support from the Northrop Grumman Foundation. While the Northrop Grumman Corporation is doing major work on the Webb telescope, the foundation's entirely separate, and filmmaker Nathaniel Kahn says that neither the company nor the foundation have had any say in the making of The Hunt for Planet B. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mofshevitz. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll learn how Logo Media has evolved its coverage of mass shootings over the years. I'm Ray Solomon. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny and Alana Schreiber. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.